Before I start this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels, who took the photograph, which adorns the cover art. Let's crack on. of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Chris Kirkbride. It's been yet another busy week as we run up to Christmas. I think I'm just going to get straight into it. As usual, what I've done is I've linked the main stories which I flag right there in the podcast description. We'll start with this week's sanctions news. And it starts in the United Kingdom, where the Department for Business and Trade, the DBT, has announced the creation of a new agency to be concerned with the enforcement of trade sanctions. The Office of Trade Sanctions Implementation, or OTSI, will um, ensure that companies who are found dodging strict trade sanctions are cracked down upon, particularly in relation to Russian sanctions. They will also be responsible for civil enforcement. This agency will be responsible for civil enforcement of trade sanctions. The unit will help businesses comply with sanctions and investigate potential breaches, issuing civil penalties and referring cases to HMRC for criminal enforcement where needed. Its remit will involve activity by companies who may be avoiding sanctions by sending products through other countries, and this third country issue has been a live issue for many jurisdictions recently. Link to the DBT press release, as well as a blog post from international law firm Baker & McKenzie, can be found in the podcast description. Staying in the UK, the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, or OFSI, these initialisms aren't going to work, are they, has added four names to the designations under the Haiti, Haiti sorry, financial sanctions regime. Johnson Andre, Renel Destina, Vitellom Innocent and Wilson Joseph are now subject to an asset freeze. In addition, OFSI has amended four designations under the Belarus Russian and Counterterrorism International sanctions. These designations were added to later in the week by a further seven designations on the Counterterrorism International list. OFSI has also added one further corporation to the Russian sanctions regime, namely Joint Stock Commercial Bank Novicom Bank, as well as amendments to 27 Russian entries. On the consolidated list, the link to all of those notices from the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, together with the updated consolidated list, can be found in the podcast description. The Foreign and well, the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office has announced that the previous regime, which operated in respect of Iran, is to be replaced with effect from 14th December. The press release and the notice replacing the Iran human rights sanctions regime with the Iran sanctions regime, presumably because they're going to broaden them, detailing the addition of seven new designations to the consolidated list can be found in the podcast description. The final story from the UK this week is the publication by OFSI of its annual review for 22-23. The review, Strengthening Our Sanctions, is linked in the podcast description where, as it happens, you can also get the annual reviews going back as far as 2017-2018. To the United States now, where while commemorating the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights 
and reaffirming its commitment to human rights. The Department of the Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC, has sanctioned 20 individuals for their connection to human rights abuse in nine countries. An additional two individuals were sanctioned under the Department of State's Counterterrorism Authority. Furthermore, the Department of State likewise designated individuals in Russia, Indonesia and the People's Republic of China for visa restrictions pursuant to Section 7031C of the Annual Appropriations Act. These actions are taken in concert with measures imposed by partners in the United Kingdom and Canada, which have similarly utilised economic measures to de deter human rights abuse globally. We stand with our partners, the press release said, in upholding international deals. Linked to that OFAC press release from which I just quoted, and the press release relating to the action by the Department of State, can be found in the podcast description. In relation to Russia, the US Department of State, in coordinated action with the Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC, has taken joint action against 250 individuals and entities connected with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The Department of State took action against 100, while OFAC has sanctioned 150 individuals or entities. The action was targeted or has targeted, quote, those engaged in sanctions evasion, furthering Russia's ability to wage its war against Ukraine and bolstering Russia's future energy production and export capacity. Those entities involved in the proliferation of military equipment and munitions from the Democratic People's Republic of Korea to Russia, as well as multiple networks used by Russia to circumvent sanctions. Mentioned that earlier. It's been a big thing. This third country allowing this third country sanctions evasion, which has been certainly on the EU's radar, mentioned in relation to the UK this week, and also the US too. Numerous third-party countries, said or third-country supplies to Russia's military-industrial base and additional Russian financial institutions. Link to the Department of State press release is in the podcast description. OFAC has also added three individuals and one entity to its specially designated nations list. Link to that press release is in the podcast description. And finally, on sanctions this week, the will-they-won't-they they saga of the EU 12th package of sanctions against Russia continues. There were reports earlier in the week that they were on the cusp of an agreement, but a late spanner has been shoved in the works by Austria over concerns about the designation of Raiffeisen Bank as an international sponsor of terrorism. Expect a little more toing and froing over coming days and expect a few more words from Hungary as the bloc looks to get this package agreed. Now that's it for sanctions news this week. We move to fraud news. The fraud news starts in the United States where, separately, two individuals have pleaded guilty to fraud on the pandemic relief fraud schemes oh sorry the pandemic relief schemes there are no fraud schemes for pandemic relief although it has attracted a good deal of fraud as i've documented in this podcast first quotes between june 2020 to february 2022 paradise williams participated in the submission of over 125 applications for the u.s department of treasury's emergency rental assistance program funds the Paycheck Protection Programme, the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Programme, and the Coronavirus Aid Relief and Economic Security Act Unemployment Benefits. Williams 
enlisted dozens of associates, including her five co-defendants, in successfully defrauding the programs of more than $3.3 million by posing as fake tenants, landlords, and small business owners in need of assistance. In submitting these applications, Williams, among other things, created falsified bank, doc, uh, bank statements, tenant ledgers, and landlord attestations. The second guilty plea from Scott Solomon was for, quotes, defrauding a loan program meant for businesses struggling with the financial effects of the coronavirus pandemic. In other news, the Department of Justice has announced the ninth distribution of funds from the Madoff Victims Fund, established following the exposure of the Ponzi scheme perpetrated by Bernard Bernie Madoff. In the ninth distribution, over, quotes, £158.9 million in funds forfeited to the US government in connection with the Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities fraud scheme will be sent to 24,874 victims across the globe, bringing their total recoveries to 91% of their fraud losses, which is actually a good return. Through its nine distributions, MVF, that is the Madoff Victims Fund, has paid over $4.22 billion to 40,843 victims as compensation for losses they suffered from the collapse of Madoff's investment scheme. Staying on the theme of Ponzi schemes, they never seem to go away, two individuals have been charged with an alleged conspiracy to, quote, operate a fraudulent scheme to induce victims to invest in various trading programs that falsely promised to employ an artificial intelligence automated trading bot to trade victims' investments in cryptocurrency markets and earn high-yield profits. The accused promoted the investment programs under various names, including Circle Society, Bitcoin Wealth Management, Omicron Trust, Mind Capital, and Cloud9 Capital. Cloud9. Rather than investing victims' funds in cryptocurrency, then allegedly misappropriated, um, uh, rather than investing victims' funds in cryptocurrency, they allegedly, uh, the allegedly misappropriated victims' funds were used to pay for personal expenses, including private chartered jet flights, luxury hotel accommodation, private mansion rental, a personal chef, and private security guards. Interesting trial, that one. Anyway, the link to all four press releases can be found in the podcast description. We end this week's fraud news with an interesting speech which has been published on the Courts and Tribunal website, given by Mark Pelling, King's Counsel, to a seminar on the topic of crypto or issues in cryptocurrency claims. With rapidly involving technology and new frauds being developed all the time, in fact, you get a lot of ingenuity around frauds, it has to be said, especially those with an international dimension complicating matters greatly because of the issues of jurisdiction and issuing claims and so on. Pelling makes the argument that legislative intervention may be needed to support crypto asset recovery, especially where it has a cross-jurisdiction element, as many do in this context. The link to the full article, which is worth a description particularly, if you're interested in those kind of fraud recovery matters as they relate to England and Wales, well, you can find it in the podcast description. Now, that's it for fraud news. We move now to money laundering. 
where we once again start in the UK and the National Crime Agency, the NCA, is calling on parents to warn their children about money muling. As the press release provides, quotes, around six in ten money mules are under the age of 30, with most of these recruited between the ages of 17 and 24 while attending sixth form college, college or university. At this age, young people may be struggling financially, looking to become financially independent or lack financial experience, which criminals can then use to exploit them. This makes the most effective time to raise children's awareness of the threat when they are aged 11 to 16. Money mules are often targeted through seemingly legitimate job offers announced via online forums, emails, social media or pop-up ads with the promise of a quick and easy earning. Once they have established contact, recruiters will often try to develop a relationship or rapport with the young person and groom or coerce them into providing the service. This is not the first time we've raised the issue of money mules and the financially vulnerable, since there have been a range of reports over the last 12 to 18 months which highlight the problem of elder money mules who allow their accounts to be used in return for a few quid. The use of older people as money, money mules, many of whom are on a fixed retirement income, has become especially acute during the cost of living crisis. Actually, not just in the UK, but there have been stories across the globe. So it's not really surprising that another sector which, on the balance, can be financially vulnerable, is looking to be exploited in this way. It seems now, following this, the parents don't only have to teach their children about the birds and the bees, but also the mules as well. That's another thing added to the list. Link to the NCA press release is in the podcast description. Now, I'll run the subject of the National Crime Agency. This week it published its issue, or issue 23, of the SARS in Action magazine. It's periodical. It has the usual range of case studies, but this issue has contents on the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Act 2023, a selection of stories related to the gambling industry, and a focus on counterfeit currency. Link to that is in the podcast description. Now, to the European Union, where the European Council and the Parliament have reached, quotes, a provisional agreement on creating a new European Authority for Countering Money Laundering and Financing of terror Terrorism, or AMLA, as it's been shortened. This will aim to protect EU citizens and the EU's financial system against money laundering and terrorist financing. AMLA will have direct and indirect supervisory powers over high-risk obliged entities in the financial sector and will boost the efficiency of the anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism framework by creating an integrated mechanism with national supervisors to ensure obliged entities comply with the AML and CFT-related obligations in the financial sector. AMLA will also have a supporting role with respect to non-financial sectors and coordinate financial intelligence units in member states. In addition to supervisory powers and in order to ensure compliance in cases of serious systemic or systematic or repeated breaches of directly applicable requirements, the authority will impose pecuniary sanctions on the related obliged entities. Of course, while all that's very interesting, the big question, which hasn't yet been addressed, is where it will be based. 
You may remember in an earlier episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, there was some speculation that several countries had thrown themselves into the hat to be chosen, but no decision has yet been made, and there was certainly nothing in that announcement relating to it. The link to the press release is in the podcast description. Now, to bribery and corruption news. This week's bribery and anti-corruption news is, unsurprisingly, jammed full of the usual platitudes about commitments to fighting corruption because of Global Anti-Corruption Day falling on Saturday of last week. Embassies, consulates, governments, transnational organisations and just about anyone else who has commented on the occasion. For my sanity and your sanity, I have no plans to go through it all. There was just too much. There was simply too much. They were all saying what you would expect them to say on Global Anti-Corruption Day. If you want to, a bit of well-targeted Google searching can come up with the massive literature, press releases and so on. So go on, go nuts, enjoy yourselves. But I'm not bothered with that. Pick your path through the thicket. There are some interesting bits out there, as there are in other areas. So what we'll do is we'll start in Ukraine, where it's been announced that the Parliament has approved the recruitment of 300 new corruption investigators. As you'll know, if you've followed this podcast and the broader news agenda, Ukraine has gone hard in the fight against corruption with its public structures, including the Parliament and the judiciary. In that context, therefore, this news comes as no surprise, but it should also be remembered that Ukraine is on the long march to EU membership, which though in the more distant future than, I suppose, more pressing future, that is the real underlying motivation for all this. Speaking of the European Union, Europol has announced the freezing of 5.5 million euros following anti-corruption investigations across the bloc. Link to the press release explaining this coordinated action can be found in the podcast description. To China for our next story, where the former head of the Chinese railway has been convicted of accepting bribes and imprisoned for 15 years. The activity covered a period of almost 20 years and he received 56.6 million yuan, around $7.96 million. In the UK, Michelle Moan, the high-profile supporter of the Conservative Party who sits as a peer, taking the Tory whip, I believe, in the upper chamber of the UK Parliament, is understood to be under investigation by the National Crime Agency for alleged bribery. Not sure if there's too much more I can say about this one, but there is a YouTube video from which the information is taken in the podcast description. That seems to be the source for many of the stories I've seen this week on this. For context, that video, which is on YouTube and linked in the podcast description, has been paid for by a company called PPE MedPro, which is a company at the centre of a scandal surrounding the provision of PPE to the National Health Service in the United Kingdom at the height of the pandemic. I'll leave that for now. Sure, there'll be more on this to come. A couple of stories from the US. First, Freepoint Commodities in Stamford, Connecticut, has, quotes agreed to pay over $98 million to resolve an investigation by the U.S. Justice Department into violations of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, the FCPA, stemming from the company's involvement in a corrupt scheme to pay bribes to Brazilian government officials. Freepoint has, has also agreed to disgorge more than $7.6 million to the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC, in a related matter. Link to that one is in the podcast description. Now, this next one is quite interesting. It's a bit obscure in a way, but Representative Ro Khanna, 
who's a member of Congress, I understand, in the US, has, quote, introduced a new political reform resolution that presents a comprehensive roadmap to achieving broad political reform in the judicial and legislative branches of the US federal government. Specifically, the political reform resolution calls for, first, 12-year or 12-year term limits for members of Congress. See, I think this is a good idea. I like that. I don't like to see parliaments where you have long-serving people who just get used to it. They offer new, no fresh or new ideas. They're just sitting there 20, 30, 40 years. Same in the UK Parliament. We've had some of our MPs for 30 or 40 years, in fact, maybe even longer. Not entirely sure that that is healthy for any democracy. So I like that. A 12-year limit for members of Congress. A ban on members of Congress. This is the second one. A ban on members of Congress from holding and trading individual stocks during the member's tenure. That seems to stand to reason to me. Thirdly, a ban on members of Congress and candidates for the House and Senate from accepting contributions from political action committees and lobbyists. And a lifetime ban on lobbying for members of Congress. Well, amen to that. Fourthly, a binding code of ethics for Supreme Court justices. Frankly, the fact they don't have one at the moment is staggering. And finally, 18-year term limits and regular appointments for future Supreme Court justices requiring a new justice to be added and another to rotate off every two years. Again, welcome that. No problem with that at all. The press release from Canna's website, together with a copy of the resolution submitted to the House of Representatives, uh, can be uh, linked in the podcast description. Worth a read, certainly, especially if you have an interest in political reform. The final story on bribery and anti-corruption this week comes from the Council of Europe and its Group of States Against Corruption, or GRECO, which has published its Corruption Evaluation Report on the United States. In that report, it has urged it, that is the United States, to ensure the promotion of the integrity of persons with senior executive functions and also of those within the personnel of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI. Link to the report is in the podcast description. Now, before we launch headlong into this week's cyber attack news, we round up a range of general stories relating to financial crime where we start in the UK again. It's been a bit UK-centric this week, where the National Audit Office has published its report into the regulation of financial services, making significant criticism of the regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, the FCA. The preamble to the report provides, the National Audit Office found that there can be a significant delay between the FCA identifying an issue and it taking action. In some cases, the FCA requires additional powers to act, such as needing legislation approved by Parliament before it can impose conduct standards on buy now, pay later credit providers. Relatedly, while the FCA has required crypto asset firms to comply with anti-money laundering regulations and engaged with unregistered firms since January 2020, it did not begin taking enforcement action against illegal operators of crypto ATMs until February 2023. And you may remember that I've mentioned a few of those stories of the FCA going after some of these unregistered crypto registers or ATMs in previous editions of this podcast. Now, while the Financial Conduct Authority 
has taken steps to adapt to the change needed to meet the changing financial services industry, issues do remain. Quote, the FCA is aware it needs to maintain specialist skills to avoid causing delays in its work. A shortage of crypto skills meant the FCA took longer than planned to register crypto asset firms under money laundering regulations in 2021, and it still finds it difficult to recruit and retain staff with these skills, something which I've heard does happen on the grapevine. The FCA told the National Audit Office that it had dealt with more than 1,400 cases related to unauthorized crypto asset activity. In 2020, more than 3,150 crypto asset scams were reported, rising to over 6,300 in 2021 and more than 3,900 in the first half of 2022. Links to the press release, the preamble and the report can be found in the podcast description. In the UK, the government has published a draft statutory instrument which will have the effect of giving the National Crime Agency the power to direct the Serious Fraud Office to perform a task specified in the order. The amendment would add an additional subsection to Section 5, Subsection 5 of the Crime and Courts Act 2013. The direction power will be limited in the sense that under Regulation 4 of the draft statutory instrument, the Director General of the National Crime Agency may only give the direction under Section 5, Subsection 5 as amended in matters which involve serious or complex fraud. While this action might be part of a wider strategy to merge the NCA, the National Crime Agency, and the Serious Fraud Office, would it be a merger or would it be a takeover? I'll leave that one to you to think about. Now, this has been trailed for some time. If you look if you look for news stories on this, the story's going back seven or eight years. For the moment, it's a matter of a limited incursion into the operational independence of the Serious Fraud Office. The link to the Crime and Courts Act, as well as the draft statutory instrument, which will be known as the National Crime Agency Directed Tasking Order 2023, what a name, can be found in the podcast description. The final piece of news from the UK this week is the publication by the Home Office of its Serious and Organised Crime Strategy 2023-2028. to The strategy claims that organised crime groups will be disrupted and dismantled along five lines of action. First, ensuring that the UK is safe internally. Secondly, by control of the border. Thirdly, by taking an international perspective. Indeed. Fourthly, by amplifying the technological capabilities needed to combat financial crime. Fifthly, by coordinated multi-agency response. Link to the strategy is in the podcast description. And finally, on other financial crime news this week, two minor things. First, the Secretary-General of Interpol, Jürgen Stock, has welcomed the communique issued by the G7 Interior and Security Ministers meeting on cyber-enabled fraud and transactional organised crime. A link to the press release and his fairly unremarkable comments can be found in the podcast description. Secondly, The U.S. Department of the Treasury has published the testimony of Assistant Secretary for Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes before the Committee on Financial Services Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations of the U.S. House. The link to that is in the podcast description. Now, we end this week's edition, episode 88, of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast with our usual roundup of the cyber 
crime news starts in the UK. I promise next week's will start in different countries. We heard earlier how the UK government had published its serious and organised crime strategy 2023-28. to Well, the Ministry of Justice has also published its five-year cybersecurity strategy. Before I say a little more about the strategy, the press release was published last week and the strategy is dated September, so there is a bit of confusion around this, but I'll park that and tell you more about it. The strategic aim is to embed secure by design thinking into everything the department does, ensuring everyone working in justice can confidently perform their security responsibilities. The strategy has eight pillars, including the development of a cyber security profession, building a positive security culture and ensuring secure services through hardened estates and security operations. Some plain English would have been great. Further, systems should be such that they have confidence in them and that cybersecurity risks are managed effectively. The final pillar is to secure the justice community. If you want to read the strategy with its borderline incomprehensibly labelled pillars, then you can find it in the podcast description. The big news from the UK this week is that a committee of the Parliament, the Joint Committee on National Security Strategy, the JCNSS, has published its report on ransomware. The report makes for decidedly worrying reading, but it is in some respects nothing we have not heard before now. First, in terms of perpetrators, quotes, the majority of ransomware attacks against the UK are coming from Russian-speaking perpetrators and the Russian government's tacit or even explicit approval of this activity is consistent with the Kremlin's disruptive zero-sum game approach to the West. This is not a straightforward state threat, however. For many Russian hackers, ransomware is simply an easy way to make large sums of money with next to no chance of being caught or prosecuted. Secondly, and in terms of vulnerabilities, quotes, Large swathes of UK critical national infrastructure, CNI, remain vulnerable to ransomware, particularly in sectors relying on legacy IT systems. And the committee has particular concerns about cash-strapped sectors such as health and local government. In fact, several local governments are reportedly, in the UK at least, on the brink of collapse. Supply chains are also particularly vulnerable and have been described by the National Crime Agency as the soft underbelly of critical national infrastructure. As a result of these vulnerabilities, a coordinated and targeted attack has the potential to take down large parts of the UK critical national infrastructure and public services, causing severe damage to the economy and everyday life in the UK. While there are recommendations, including the establishment of a cross-border regulator, or cross-sector regulator rather, on critical national infrastructure cyber resilience and the need for increased resourcing of relevant agencies, I would like to feel a greater sense of urgency in all of this. This needs to be in place now. And the fact that it isn't, and the fact that it's going to take longer, means that the UK remains vulnerable and we should all continue to be concerned about this. The link to this thoroughly depressing report can be found in the podcast description. Okay, let's wind down now. In news of cyber attacks, the University of Wollongong 
has admitted that a cyber attack earlier this month is likely to have compromised data to some degree. External experts have been coordinating the university's response, but no perpetrator has been identified. I'm guessing, though, that we could probably line up the usual suspects. Although sometimes educational institutions do have rogue students who will carry out a cyber attack because of some perceived grudge that they have. In the Ukraine-Russia conflict, the tit-for-tat cyber attacks continue. First, Russia is believed to have carried out an attack on Kyivstar, the Ukrainian mobile network, while Ukraine has claimed it has hacked the Russian tax office in an, in an attack which is said to have compromised an entire database. On the subject of tax, the cyber security company Kaspersky has warned of attempts by fraudsters to convince those completing tax returns in the UK or claiming cost-of-living support that they're using a legitimate government website when, in fact, they may be using a convincing fake site. So I suppose the line is that when you're filling out your tax returns on the 31st of January, because, let's face it, most people leave it to the last minute, you need to bear this in mind. A couple of other cyber attacks. First, in the German-speaking part of Switzerland, a district court has announced that it is the victim of a cyber attack. And while there's little detail to be provided at the moment, there is a notice on the website providing that the entire IT system had to, to be shut down to protect data, and it's unclear at the moment when systems will be up and running again. The final story this week, we go to Europe and Europol, which has issued an early warning notification concerning Bluetooth trackers for geolocation link to that is in the podcast description well that's it for episode 88 of the financial crime weekly podcast if you want to do so you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast and you'll hear from me again all being well next sunday with the usual roundup of all things financial crime have a great week everyone <laughs>